Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy BespokeCast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Welcome back to another episode of BespokeCast. I'm George Perks, Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, and today we are joined by one of our friends from the far side of the world at the moment, joining me from China. Uh, I believe he's in Beijing right now. We'll, we'll see uh, once we start talking to him. Is Darren Fredericks. He's at Crush Spread on Twitter, and he is an expert in global agricultural markets. Uh, at this point, uh, in the sort of development of the different trade negotiations and trade posturing that's going on around the world, um, China investigating the United States for sorghum dumping, uh, you know, a lot of shifting pieces around NAFTA, around um, the EU and the US trade relationship, around the China US bilateral relationship. Um, lots of stuff going on that really has a lot of impact on ag markets. And ag markets are a really fun niche area of the financial markets that don't get a ton of discussion. So we're really excited to talk to Darren today. Darren, welcome to BespokeCast. Thanks, George, for having me. Actually, I am calling in from beautiful Dalian. Oh, very nice. Uh, which is up on the northern seaport, also home of the uh, Dalian Commodity Exchange. So that's where we do all our uh our futures trading here. Okay, so before um, we get too far into talking about all the all the fun stuff we're gonna uh, dive into, I uh, would love to hear a little bit about your background. So you're joining us from China, but you are American. Yeah, um, I actually grew up in Northwest Iowa. Um, so grew up around agriculture, spent uh, about four years going to school in Des Moines for university. Um, after school, worked, in, uh, worked at ING in Des Moines for a little bit doing general sort of back office drudgery um, that the straight out of college experience. Um, then spent about four years working for a small research company in Des Moines called Egg Trader Talk. And so we just focused really heavily on fundamentals, cash markets of corn and soybeans. And then back in about August 2016, decided I wanted to go out and explore a little bit. So ended up in Dalian. Um, working for a trading company here. And how did you find that opportunity? I mean, that is like, you know, moving from Iowa and growing up in Iowa and, you know, the sort of middle of the United States being your frame of reference, like that's a huge change to go to Dalian. So how did that all come about? Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so um, as part of my job when I was in the U.S., I would come to China um, maybe once or twice a year just for conferences, fact-finding, uh, things of that sort. So I actually met some of my current coworkers here in Dalian at a conference maybe four or five years ago. Um, so just kept in touch with them over the years. Um, when I decided I sort of wanted to venture out and try something new, I gave them a call and they were excited about the idea of having somebody with a different view, um, different perspective come and um, help them do some of their global analysis. So the trading firm you work for, they are focused in China, but obviously agricultural markets are globalized, so they're having to take into account what's going on in Russia, Argentina, the United States, Canada, so on and so forth. Yeah, exactly. So 
primarily their focus before was on the Chinese sort of domestic market uh, for things like soybeans, uh, soybean meal, corn, things like that. Um, we didn't really have as much focus internationally. Um, so now we have basically built up our international analysis to focus on um, cash prices, uh, supply and demand forecasts, things like that, especially for U.S., Brazil, and Argentina. And is your firm taking a, a role as a middleman? Is it a speculative venture, or like how would, how does it fit into the value chain of agricultural products? Um, so basically, what we are doing is risk management and hedging for Chinese feed companies or um, Chinese crushing plants or processing plants. Um, relatively speaking, a lot of these firms are not as developed as their U.S. counterparts when it comes to hedging. Um, they're not as familiar with how to trade spreads or trade bases. Um, for a long time, they would just sort of buy um, buy cash soybeans out of the U.S. Um, they'd bring them in here, they'd crush them and just sell the meal without really doing much in terms of risk management on that. So in other words, no hedging at all. That's just that's just buy in one place and sell in another and you're taking all of the different basis risk and um, price risk over the intervening time period and saying, we'll just swallow that. Yeah, exactly. And up until a couple of years ago, the, the whole processing industry was so cyclical because of that. I mean, if they got a paper profit, everyone would rush in, buy a bunch of soybeans from wherever. They'd all come over here, everyone would crush them, the prices would collapse and just repeat. So there'd be some companies that would make huge amounts of money, um, but then there'd be some that would collapse. I mean, there was a big one called like Sunrise Trading where made huge outside bets and got it right for a couple of years and then maybe three or four years ago got it wrong <laughs> and now they're no longer around. Part of the financialization of the agricultural market in China then is not just, oh, you know, that's what everyone does. It makes things more easy to speculate or something like that. It's also we want to smooth it out and we don't want to have boom and bust cycles going on within individual commodities. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, you know, relatively speaking, the futures products are new here. I mean, we just launched soybean options on the Dalian Exchange last year. They're looking to hopefully start a hog futures contract by the end of this year. So a lot of the products that we take for granted in the United States haven't really existed in China that long. So there's not that much experience trading. There. It's also so interesting, too, that, that what you guys do is facilitate end user hedging because, you know, just scrolling through Twitter the other day, I saw a couple of American economists talking about how the, you know, uh, sort of the uh, origin story of futures trading as an agricultural hedging tool doesn't actually exist anymore. And nobody on the U.S. exchanges is actually managing price risk as an agricultural producer, as a farmer. Um, so it's really funny to, to sort of hear, you know, people that actually work in ag. And, um, you know, I've, I ran this by someone else that uh, I know quite well who who works in ag. And, you know, she she said the same thing, like, you know, we're, we're facilitating end users here. Like, it's not like this is all speculative money. And China, I think, especially gets a reputation as being like a very speculative place for all sorts of reasons, not just in futures markets, but in general. So, you know what you guys do is is really not that right it's 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 facilitating uh, in, uh mitigation of risk yeah exactly but i would say that as a portion of the overall trading on the chinese futures market that is still relatively uncommon um there's still most of your volume for the dollar exchange seems to come from small-time players um you know rich guys who want to sort of speculate on the free time 
there isn't as much institutional trading, whereas, you know, in Chicago, you've got mostly institutions, farmers, companies hedging, and a couple people playing with their own money, whereas in Dowling, it's much more individuals sort of playing with their own money or speculating based on, you know, technicals or momentum. Right, which is sort of the, the I guess, the rolling ball of money thesis that has been um, proposed about Chinese financial markets that there's always some hot thing that you know something's some some group of speculators is rolling into so on and so forth um, whether it's rebar futures or being short the Chinese one or equities or whatever there's always you know credit markets so on and so forth there's always something that um, is getting people's attention um, have you seen in your time there sort of a more professionalization of the market and a more maturity in the market, or is it something that's going to take much longer than a relatively short-term, you know, you know, two or three-year viewpoint? I mean, we have seen um, somewhat of an increase in sort of the professional level um, because I mean, we just did launch uh, the soybean options, which had you know, they had never really been comfortable. I think the regulators with having not only a something that could be used to speculate on food, but then a derivative of that to speculate on food. Um, but they finally got those introduced and we are seeing new products, but I think it will take, you know, it will take a decent amount of time. Uh, part of that is because it's um, not really open to external investors. You know, a lot of the institutions or hedge funds in the West, they can't really come into China and trade based on their models. So it's really sort of the Chinese industry developing on its own. So there's no arbitrage, in other words, between Dalian and Chicago? Uh, there is, but only for Chinese firms. <laughs> right, right. Um, so just to back out a little bit, um, it would be helpful, I think, to sort of walk people through how the global agricultural market works. Um, because I think, you know, people kind of have a conception of, oh, well, you know, you have some farmers and they grow some crops and then that gets sent to, I don't know, a granary somewhere. And then that eventually gets made into bread and then great, there we go. But in reality, I think it's a lot more complicated than that. There's all sorts of cultural factors. There's all sorts of um, protectionism or, um, you know, government policy at play, whether it's in um, corn markets in the United States, grain markets in China, my understanding is are very closely protected, unlike soybean markets in China. So there's like different is there there's all sorts of geographic arbitrage there's all sorts of um weather impacts it all gets very complicated so it would be helpful to sort of get like a, a high level view of like how the global grain markets or the global agricultural markets more generally work um and you know how china fits into that and maybe how the u.s fits into that i don't know I, that's sort of open-ended so I'll, i'm kind of just leaving it to yeah. you to sort of give a perspective i realize that's kind of a big ask but <laughs> um, yeah, so basically, um, I would say that most of it comes down to three major crops globally. Uh, we look at corn, wheat, and soybeans. Um, corn is primarily going to be grown in the U.S. and South America, such as uh, Brazil and Argentina. Those are also your two big exporters that feed, that feed Asian countries, Southeast Asia, Africa, and so forth. Um, Europe does grow some corn, but they also import a lot. Um, and then the other major corn producer is China. Uh, China produces a huge amount of corn because of government subsidies, um, but most of that stays within China. Um, they have large government stockpiles. The government has price supports up until very recently. Uh, so China doesn't really import much because they are producing so much of their own. Um, on wheat, you've got that's produced you know, in Canada, the United States, a little bit in Argentina, Europe, Russia and Australia. 
Um, for wheat, it's a little more complicated because there's many different varieties. Uh, you'll have a lot of different prices based on what they call milling characteristics or protein values. So you might have sort of a low quality wheat out of, um, if it's bad weather, for example, you'll have a low quality wheat that's used to feed animals. Um, but certain types of wheat out of Australia will usually be more expensive because they make better quality noodles in Asia. So by, by quality, so are you referring sort of... to like gluten content or like what's the scientific like definition of quality? Because I'm, I'm sure this is like quantified somehow, right? Yeah, there's a couple different ways. One is um, like gluten content or protein content. Um, usually if it's higher protein, they'll pay more. Um, there's all these different scientific determinations. One's called like a Halbert fog number where you basically grind it up and see how long it takes for like a metal rod to sink to the bottom. Um, <laughs> very scientific. <laughs> and yeah, very scientific, but there's all these different ways they quantify it. Um, and it's also like based on the color, things like that. Uh, but generally, for instance, Russia is known for having very good sort of bread quality wheat. Um, certain specific grades like hard red winter in the U.S. are made for bread. U.S. also has soft red winter, which is more for like cookies. Um, it gets into this very, very niche uh, stuff into that. <laughs> That's not true, though, with corn, right? So you, you said that corn is kind of all one grade and you don't see as many different varietals with corn. What, what's the difference there? Is it is there a reason historically that corn and wheat haven't operated sort of in that in the same way that way? Well, I mean, there is a relationship in terms of low-quality wheat, but only because that's used for animal food. Because we make so many different products out of wheat directly for human consumption, we're more discerning consumers than cows, for example. Uh, whereas, you know, most of this global corn for feed goes just into pig feed, chicken feed, uh, feed for cows, things like that. So there really doesn't need to be as much differentiation between types got it it's just that humans have higher standards than animals or you know, <laughs> biofuel plants or i guess corn syrup manufacturers yep exactly um so that's sort of the wheat general recap and then for soybeans um soybeans are basically growing right now in the u.s argentina and brazil um, we use those domestically to feed animals um, but then china's the biggest global buyer um, buying about 97 million metric tons a year um, so they're basically cycling between the U.S. and South America, depending on the season, um, and just buying up most of the exportable supplies for feeding pigs here in China. Uh, 97 million metric tons of purchasing per year. What does that work out to in terms of global um, production of, of soybeans? Uh, Brazil is going to be about 113 this year. Um, Argentina is about 47. Uh, so world production is about 341 right now. Okay, so 341 million and almost, what, 25% of that is just getting shipped to China. Yes. Mm -hmm. So China doesn't grow very much of its own soybeans. They they grow, right now it's about 14 million metric tons. Uh, but a lot of that is used specifically for food grade. Um, so making things like tofu. Um, or eating directly for human consumption. So that market tends to be separate from the market that we have for imported soybeans for animal feed. Right. I mean, edamame is like the edamame you get when you go and eat sushi. That That's a soybean, right? It, you're not eating the same thing that uh, a hog is going to be feeding on when you're eating your edamame at a sushi place. Yeah. Why is it then that, that China is relatively self-sufficient in corn and grows a fair bit of wheat by the sounds of it, 
but they don't really grow anywhere near enough soybeans for for the hog production that they do domestically and the other livestock they do domestically? Um, there's a couple of reasons. I think the first would be that they realized that there was just no conceivable way that they'd be able to grow enough of everything. Uh, just a function of arable land and climate. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, they, they can't grow enough of everything. And I think early on they realized that they were going to have to import something. Um, soybeans being a pretty obvious choice. Um, the other thing is that in terms of what this sort of dates back to is this idea of food security, right? Um, you can have people eat rice. You can have people eat bread. Um, that goes directly and very efficiently to feed people. Uh, soybeans are more of a, I don't want to say a luxury item, but they're basically bought to feed to pigs so that you can have meat. And relatively speaking, if you're talking food security, wheat is going to be you know, your more fundamental concern versus meat. Right. That makes sense. Um, if you look at some of the history around food security during the Second World War, for instance, I'm, I'm just I'm thinking on a tangent here. But, um, you know, during the yeah. <laughs> period when India suffered a number of famines in the around the period of the Second World War, there were options for relief with wheat from um, Australia. Nobody was worried about trying to bring more meat or soybeans to, to India. What they wanted was was wheat and rice to, to for subsistence level calorie consumption. So that, that kind of makes good sense. Um, on the topic of food security, is Mexico's relationship with corn and especially American corn another example of that? Yeah, exactly. Um, so Mexico, I mean, they since we've had NAFTA, they've been very comfortable just entirely buying U.S. corn. Um, and I think now they're starting to get obviously worried about that because they just don't have the relationships or the infrastructure um, to buy huge amounts from other places. A lot of the corn that we see going to Mexico from the U.S. Um, goes by train. And that can usually go to smaller producers in the middle of the country. So if there were some kind of tariffs, it would be very difficult for them to just immediately switch to buying from Brazil or Argentina because they don't have you know, the port infrastructure built up where they can take these huge vessels, somehow transport that in, load it onto trains, do all the things like that. Right. You need the lift capacity in terms of ships, and then you need to get the corn off the ships, let alone the concerns about actually going out and buying on the market outside of the North American uh, zone. And then you need to worry about redistribution from ports to the individual you know, producers or, or whatever of the, of whatever you're going to do with the corn. So, um, that, that makes a lot of sense. Do you, do you think that this is something that worries Mexico a lot? Because, you know, I, I guess from the perspective of an, of an American, we produce so much food, I mean, really just ridiculous. And, and we're so wealthy that it, food security is just something that especially, you know, folks like you and me don't really think about that much. Um, you know, even if you're a relatively low income person, a program like SNAP, like calories are relatively available. But if you're that same person in, in Mexico, or if you're the Mexican government, like it's a very different question thinking about the trade relationship. Like you're not just talking about economic um, viability, you're talking about people having food in their belly, right? So d is that something that, that you've seen coloring the evolution of the dynamics around the NAFTA renegotiation? Yeah, definitely. Um, if you look at it, I mean, this is also a bit off on a tangent, but I mean, if you look at a lot of sort of like revolutions or uprisings or civil unrest that have happened, a lot of that deals in part with food inflation. Um, obviously, there's many other things that contributed to the Arab Spring, 
But a lot of people point out that, you know, Syria had an extended drought over several years. Wheat prices, bread prices in Middle East, Northern Africa were very high. So it's easier for people to be sort of angry when they're hungry. Um, and then if you look at, you know, Mexico, uh, I was reading last night, so reading a USDA report that says, for Mexican, for their chicken meat production, feed represents 65% of the total cost. Um, for what it takes to make a chicken. So, I mean, if you did have a disruption that incredibly impacts, you know, meat prices, food prices, even about 10 years ago, we had tortilla protests in Mexico um, when corn prices were incredibly high. So it's definitely, I think, a concern because if all of a sudden that's cut off, you have massive food inflation, that's, that's a cause for um, civil unrest. Is the evolution of trade discussions that are going on right now, you know, to varying degrees, acrimonious or, or not acrimonious? I mean, I, I think NAFTA has actually been surprisingly well ordered how it's been renegotiated. And, and the things that are being discussed are, I think, much more technical than, than get they get credit for. I mean, we, we see sort of a presidential tweet or we hear a certain headline on CNBC or, or on our Bloomberg terminal, and it, you know, it sort of seems like oh, NAFTA could collapse. But really, a lot of the issues that are at stake are relatively technical and in the weeds. So, do you think? Have you seen um, a good enough consideration around the impact of NAFTA renegotiations? What's specifically being discussed? Um, what it would look like for withdrawal of the U.S. from NAFTA on American farmers? Like, do you think that that's sinking in for people that that grow this stuff, that grow the food that we eat and that we export to the rest of the world? By we, I mean Americans. I apologize to any international <laughs> listeners. I know you're out there in your in your numbers, but um, thinking about this from an American perspective, uh, do you think that that farmers are are aware that there's this sort of risk to the whole infrastructure that's built up around agriculture? Um, yeah, I think they're aware of it. I mean, obviously, they are generally, it's an interesting group because, you know, they are generally more conservative leaning, uh, but they also realize the importance of free trade to what they do. Uh, so I think there is a concern there. Um, so far, um, we haven't seen as much shift in Mexico's behavior as I would have expected. Last year, they did buy a couple of sort of trial cargoes of corn out of Brazil. Um, much more than they'd ever... Just to sort of see if they could do it? Yeah, it's much more than they'd ever bought previously. But on the scale of how much they buy from the U.S., it's sort of a drop in the bucket. So I guess Mexico, you know, they've tried a little bit, uh, but they don't seem as worried as they were maybe six months ago. Turning back to China, there's currently an anti-dumping investigation being pushed by the Chinese government around the crop sorghum, which obviously is not something that is going to move markets super significantly. I mean, it's a relatively esoteric crop, um, but (laughs) it still is is being viewed by some as sort of a a sign of things to come. Um, Do you can you talk a little bit about that sorghum investigation, why that matters and, you know, how it sort of relates to the the broader uh, strokes of the agricultural trade relationship between the U.S. and China? Yeah, um, so sorghum is a sort of interesting crop. Um, primarily, it's grown in Texas and Kansas. Uh, most of the Texas supplies got exported to China. So basically, back when China joined the World Trade Organization, they were allowed to put limits on the amount of imports they had for corn, wheat, rice, things like that, um, but not on things like sorghum and barley. So once Chinese prices got very high. Uh, A lot of traders realized that they could import those and make a very good arbitrage profit because they work just as well for animal feed. Uh, So you'd have a situation where uh, corn for export in the U.S. would be $7 a bushel, 
and maybe sorghum would be three or four dollars a bushel. So they could just bring that in, uh, make quite a bit of money. So for the past couple of years, China has basically been buying up the entire U.S. sorghum supply um, and bringing it in for cheap animal feed. Um, so it's a relatively easy measure for China to put in place. It doesn't have a dramatic impact. Um, it shuts down a small arbitrage. Um, but again, for the farmers that were growing this stuff in Texas, they've seen three or four years of very high prices. And now basically 90% of their export market is just gone overnight. And that sorghum will find uses elsewhere. So for instance, in U.S. feedlots or who knows where else, but the demand is going to be lower. It's it's not going to be, they're not going to fetch the same prices they were fetching that the tariff wall essentially boosted um, on the sorghum crop. Yeah, because the, the domestic prices in China are cut off from a lot of the outside world. So Chinese buyers could pay, you know, a premium of one to two dollars a bushel versus what this grain is probably worth in the U.S. and still make a profit importing it into China uh, just because of how high Chinese prices are. Um, so without that buyer willing to pay this huge premium, now they're left with a grain that is, you know, worth just the same as everything else. Right. Um, the, the U.S. market also, it seems like um, the U.S. market has become more specialized. The U.S. agricultural market has become more specialized um, in terms of focusing on global demand, on links to the rest of the world via exports, most of all to China, but but in large measure to other parts of the world too, when a crop doesn't do so well in Brazil or Russia or wh where have you. Um, we're not just sort of serving an internal economy um, anymore. We're serving a, a, a global economy in a way that maybe wouldn't be familiar to people that that were around 30 or 40 years ago. Um, has that sort of process of globalization created risks for American producers of agricultural products as well as opportunities? Yeah, um, both. Um, so on the hand of, you know, creating risks, um, a lot of the countries in South America, for instance, have just much better um, better ability to scale. Um, if you look at some of these farms in Brazil, they're just many, many, many multiples bigger than U.S. farms. So they're just much more efficient. Um, they can also produce things much cheaper. If we look at, you know, the wheat market in the U.S. has been in decline for a while now. And part of that is because you have incredibly cheap producers with very low cost of production um, in places like Russia, Ukraine. And we really can't compete with them on price in a lot of situations so that creates risk is that is that purely a labor cost thing is that is that yield differentials catching up like like what why is their cost so much lower is it the climate like what's driving um, the u.s um so for russia i mean they just have really high quality land where they're growing it um, but it is also a lot of labor cost um, just generally cheaper because the u.s has had relatively high yields compared to the rest of the world in, you know, pick your commodity, whether it's wheat or corn or whatever, right? And so that that allowed a, a price competitiveness that is now starting to, to ebb a little bit because other factors are driving a wedge higher? Yeah, exactly. And the other, the other major thing would be land cost. Um, you know, for a lot of countries, you're talking about much cheaper land. Um, and also, if you look at a country like Ukraine, for example, a lot of the wheat is produced not by small local farmers farming, you know, 100 or 1,000 acres. It's run by these large um, agro companies that control, you know, tens of thousands of hectares. And just if you're running an operation like that, 
you can just be much more efficient than let's say a independent farmer in Kansas. Is there a reason that countries like using Ukraine, Russia, Brazil as examples, why they're able to achieve scale um, easier than the than the U.S. market? Because I know a, a big theme for farmers in recent years has been the fact that small family farms are not really that viable anymore and that there has been a, a move towards consolidation. Um, you know, I, I have cousins who do some farming and animal raising in Missouri and they, I don't think they would even consider doing it as anything as a side thing. And, you know, they, they love doing it, but it's just the economics of it are so hard. They need, they need other stuff to put food on the table. So why is it that the U.S. has that problem of, of well, problem, I, I don't want to make it sound pejorative, but the uh, cost structure challenge of lots of small farms as opposed to these other countries where scale is easier to achieve? Well, for a lot of these farms that we're talking about, let's say in Iowa or Missouri, I mean, these farms have been around for, um, you know, 100, 150 years. Um, so originally, when you do all this, you know, they're just on a much smaller scale. Um, for countries that have developed their agriculture intensity more recently, like Ukraine, like Brazil, they can go out and just have vast areas of land that are entirely owned by a company. So they can just make these huge fields in Brazil. Um, they also... Uh, you know, also when you get to that type of scale, it's very easy to just bring in um, seasonal labor. Um, you also have a lot less regulations, a lot less environmental regulations. Um, so the cost of doing business is just all around lower. Is the, is the environmental cost to these countries something that's going to limit their sustainability as agricultural uh, superpowers, I guess you could say? I mean, like, so for instance, like, you know, if you cut down enough of the Amazon, hypothetically, to, um, you know, grow wheat, eventually you're going to have an erosion problem, right? Like, like certainly there's got to be some sort of feedback loop there. Um, is that something that people think about at all? Or is that sort of like so big picture and so long term that nobody would think about it? Honestly, I mean, it is a concern. I just don't think day-to-day um, -day operations are thinking about that. Um, I was actually really surprised because... Apparently, deforestation is a really big issue in Australia right now. Um, the Economist had a piece on it maybe two or three weeks ago that huge amounts of um, Australian forests are being cleared, like on par with the Congo or the Amazon, uh, mostly just to free up land to do cattle raising for basically selling beef to you know the rising middle class in Asia. So I mean, it's a problem globally, and it's also a problem here in China. Where they're, you know, a lot of the land is just so polluted that they need to take, you know, a couple of years just for it to get clean enough to grow again. I saw a statistic, um, uh, a study that was, I think maybe WTO um, about China specifically about some of the air pollution curbs um, that have been instituted in the past two or three years in China and the predictions that it's going to raise life expectancy by like two or three years, which is just. I mean, that's really something to think about. You know, you growing up in Iowa, I grew up in British Columbia and I've lived in New York City and North Carolina. And none of these four places are really have a big pollution problem, right? Like, um, you know, even New York now, uh, you, you never see smog, right? Like you never worry about that sort of thing. And yet a lot of these societies that we trade with that are, you know, a very important part of the global economy and global culture, like they're dealing with pollution that's just, off the chain. Can you talk a little bit about that and like on a personal level, living in Dalian, you know, spending time in Shanghai, Beijing, like what's that like having that pollution around? 
Um, yeah, so I mean, it's definitely, I will say it's gotten better this past year. Um, last winter, especially up north, just gets very bad. Um, a lot of the, part of that is a lot of the heating for the entire city is done on sort of like a block heating with um, steam pipes going through all the buildings. Um, and those are usually powered by coal plants. Um, so it does get a little bit annoying during the winter, um, especially if it's bad out. You know, you usually need to wear a mask. Um, you have like a personal air filter that's running inside of your apartment to make sure everything's relatively clean. Um, it definitely gets a little bit dreary once you have, you know, a couple days in a row where the sky is gray and you can't really see the sun. Um, it was bad last year, but I will say they, they've done a lot of stuff this year where it's not perfect. I mean, it's still generally a little bit smoggy, but not nearly as bad as it was last year. It's impressive that it's made such a big difference that you like you notice it. Like it's one thing to be out there with like a particle reader or whatever and do air samples and oh, okay, it's better. It's another thing to be like, oh yeah, no, it's it's much better because they shut down a few you know uh, teapot refineries or whatever it is that they're doing to to curb pollution. Yeah, and and part of that, you know, some of it is obviously long term fixes. Um, this past year, a lot of it was that they shut down basically people burning coal, um, even for their own homes, um, and trying to switch that to natural gas. Um, but of course, we there seemed to be problems with infrastructure supply. So last year, or just you know maybe six months ago, uh, natural gas prices in Northeast China just went insane because there's simply not enough. Uh, supply to switch everyone from coal to natural gas. With respect to China's growing consumption and, and Asia's growing consumption to not not just China um, of meat, is that a trend that you think is going to be at all price sensitive, or is that something that that's kind of just going to keep trucking no matter what prices do? I mean, right now we've been in a, a lull since twenty what, uh, 12, 2013, um, in a lot of these agricultural products, um, as far as price goes. But, you know, when you add a billion people to the list of folks who regularly eat fair quantities of meat, um, price kind of has to go up somehow. Right. So, um, is, is that something that you think is a, is a trend that's going to keep going kind of regardless of what price does, or is that going to be more price sensitive than, than other sort of large global trends we see? Um, I, I don't know how I don't know if it's going to be terribly price sensitive. Um, part of the reason for that, I mean, a lot of this stuff, especially in a growing middle class, uh, growing affluent class, um, a lot of this stuff is in some ways to show off as much as it is for the enjoyment of the actual product. Um, there's a joke, you know, especially here in China, where if you go to Starbucks, for example, you're paying dramatically higher prices than you would even in the U.S. You know, you're paying uh, 50 or 60 RMB, so about like eight or ten dollars for a latte. And a lot of people joke that it's more for taking the picture uh, to put on your WeChat or Instagram than it is for the actual enjoyment of the beverage. Um, so as long as there continues to be sort of a status um, associated with that, I think a lot of people will be a little bit less price sensitive to that. Yeah, I just I pulled up just while. Uh, you were talking about that. I pulled up the China beef prices, and it's crazy. Like in 2013, beef was up 35% year over year um, in the Chinese CPI index. And of course, the reliability of data in China is so so, and so on and so forth. But that is 
crazy that you know with with prices rising that quickly people were still like oh yeah great we you know want to eat more beef like <laughs> i know if beef prices were rising 35 percent year over year in the united states people would be losing their minds yeah and <laughs> and again i mean it's um it's also i think to an extent you know the more westernization of the diets um a lot of a lot of things are just becoming more Western here from everything from, you know, obviously the popularity of KFC and McDonald's um, to pizza to, I mean, they have like two Taco Bells in Shanghai now. Um, but also there's also a trend, I think, especially among the younger generation for healthier food. Um, they grew up in an environment, you know, where there's a lot of concerns about food safety. So a lot of the younger people I work with are, you know, eating organic salads with GMO free chicken and, all that kind of stuff. Something that would be very similar, very, very recognizable to a person working in midtown Manhattan and going to lunch at chopped salads. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about the sort of underlying data and frameworks and, you know, how the global agricultural markets work. Uh, we haven't really talked much about trading agricultural products, which is probably a very different sort of thing. Um, from the perspective of somebody that isn't going to go out and immediately, you know, start punting around in futures markets, which is definitely one way to trade agricultural products. Um, could you sort of talk about some of the strategies or approaches that people will use to incorporate this space into an investment strategy that that isn't just, oh, I think the crop report's going to, you know, come in bearish. So I'm going to go out and, and sell a bunch of wheat futures or something like that. Yeah, of course. Um, so, I mean, obviously, we for what we do, you know, you break the trading down into either uh, flat price or spreads. Um, you know, flat price being just buying or selling wheat or corn or whatever. Um, but for most of the commercial traders, it comes down to the spread trading, um, basically spreading between two different months. Um, so, for example, with soybeans, the most popular one would be um, buying November and selling November. And that would be sort of a bullish bet that the balance sheet, the supply is going to get tighter um, or conversely selling July and buying November, sort of hoping that the futures curve flattens down. Um, and so that's that probably has the most close relationship between uh, what we actually see in the in the physical market in terms of supply. Um, so that's so sorry, just just to just to rehash that, because mm -hmm. I think you said buy November and sell November. So no. <laughs> um, so bullish, uh, we're going to buy November, sell July bearish, we're going to sell July buy November. And what we're doing there is betting on changes in the shape of the contango or backwardation in the market as opposed to um, an outright level bet. Yeah, exactly. So just to clarify, so if you're bullish, you would buy uh, you'd buy the July, uh, sell the November. Bearish, you would sell the July, um, buy the November. And and that's with July being the the nearer month. Yeah, exactly. So July is going to be the nearer month. Um, July is the time of the year where the U.S. doesn't have much supply. Um, harvest is still several months off. We're at the sort of the low end of our supply. Um, so if demand is too strong. We're going to see that contract rally very strong, uh, rally very fast, but we won't see much change in November because November is after the next harvest has come. Um, so we should be relatively safe on supply, so that contract shouldn't really move. Is most of the volatility in um, 
the sort of different trades you can put on with soybean futures is is the volatility more attractive in terms of the intramonts or do, do the level changes in the curve tend to be bigger like so for instance like in um, interest rate products you can often get much higher PL volatility by doing relative um, value type stuff so you know December euro dollars versus December of the next year euro dollars or that sort of thing um, the level of the curve is not going to change enormously like you'll see 35 basis point swings in those contracts over that those spreads over a number of weeks the, the entire curve isn't going to level shift 35 basis points very often I mean it, it happens from time to time but um, so with soybeans specifically or other agricultural futures, is it mostly the shape of the curve that's changing or is the level of the curve also moving quite a lot as well? Um, you're definitely going to have more volatility, um, more um, P&L swings if you're doing the, the spreading between those. Um, so let me just give you an example here. Um, so on so the start of February, uh, soybeans, let's say, were um, about 980. Um, and then they got up to about 1080 at the beginning of March. Um, so basically they went up about a dollar per bushel. Uh, but over that same period, that July, November spread we were talking about, it was trading basically at even money. Um, so no, July, November were the same at the beginning of February. And one month later, at the beginning of March, it was trading 50. Uh, uh, so about 50 cents. So 50 cents. Yeah. Um, but given the size of the positions, I would say there's probably more risk in trading in trading some of these, especially if the spread grows across different marketing years. What do you mean by that? Um, um, new crop versus old crop. Um, so basically the leftover stuff from this year versus the new crop of next year. In other words, when you're moving across crop cycles, you tend to get larger volatility swings. Yes. Mm -hmm. For someone that is interested in getting exposed to agricultural products more generally, you know, maybe not a specific futures trade or maybe not something related to a specific commodity, um, does it ever make sense to buy exchange traded products or um, something of that nature that will give you broad agricultural exposure? You know, I know there are folks in energy who would tell you, like, if you're doing that to get oil exposure, you're going to leak so much P&L that it's just not worth doing. Um, would be curious to hear about about your opinion on that. Um, I, I haven't really looked as much on the structure of that. I mean, I know there's the I know there's three different products for corn, soybeans and wheat. Um, I can't speak to specifically how they're designed, if it's going to be a, a terrible decision or not. Um, usually those are also relatively low volume. Um, which is also another problem. Um, generally speaking, you'd also want to take into account if it's, you know, in a contango or a backwardation um, to see how much you'd hypothetically be losing just due to the rolls um, between different months. Just to expand a little bit for, for folks that don't automatically tweak to that. So if a futures market is in backwardation, that means the dollars price, the dollar price of the, the nearest contract is going to be higher than the dollar price of an out month contract. So when you buy an out month contract and just hold it up until the near month, you're collecting yield by being long. If you're in contango, it's the opposite. So when you buy an out month contract, it rolls down the curve and you're losing money just by being long. So how the, the futures curve is structured is really important for 
how where your PL is going to come from. If a, if a if a futures curve is in backwardation for long periods of time, you can get huge PL just by being long and collecting that roll yield, even though spot prices don't move that much. Conversely, you can lose tons of money by being long something that's in contango because you're constantly buying high and selling low as you roll your positions along the futures curve so that's that's just what um darren's referring to there sorry darren i just wanted to make sure that was clear for people yep <laughs> no yeah, much more concise than i would have been able to explain it do, um, but yeah do the various ag curves switch between contango and backwardation frequently because i know like you know obviously interest rate curves are very rarely if ever going to be in um a state of uh, contango, it, you know, backwardation, like an upward sloping yield curve is sort of what it's always gonna be for interest rate products. Uh, for oil, it tends to move around quite a lot. Um, how, do, how does it look in egg? Yeah, egg will definitely switch a lot. Um, for the past couple of years, we've just had such massive oversupply in corn and wheat um, that those have always had upward sloping curves. Um, you know, the near months have always been cheaper. Uh, for soybeans, we relatively, We'll have sort of an upward sloping curve in the U.S. markets through about July, uh, but then usually um, July will be priced typically higher than November, um, but that one will switch dramatically between, um, you know, an inverse and a carry, just depending on South American weather and those kind of demand factors. It sounds a lot like the natural gas market where, you know, there's always a hump in the curve. Like you can see if you if you chart a natural gas curve, whether it's in contango or backwardation overall, it's always like an S pattern, right? Like, like it's always contracts yep, always yep. traded a premium for January, December. Exactly. So, yep, exactly. Or like, um, like our Bob futures as another example. Right. Exactly. The, uh, lots of seasonality there. Um, so if someone was interested in starting to trade like the raw futures product, so they didn't want to do an ETF, they didn't want to do an ETN, they didn't want to pay a fund manager or whatever, how would you recommend that they learn more about trading ag and like and like getting involved in the space? Obviously, you don't want to just pile in and start trading because that's a great way to incinerate capital. Um, but, you know, whether it's um, I don't know. It would be the best way to get involved in ag as a trader. Well, there's a couple um, a couple things. First of all, is that the the CME does have what they call mini size contracts. Um, so the typical contracts that you're trading are five thousand bushels um, physically delivered. Um, the mini contract, which, which just as a note, never physically, <laughs> never take physical delivery. If you've taken physical delivery, you're in deep trouble. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but they do have they do have smaller contracts that are a thousand bushels. They're not as liquid, um, so you're not going to be day trading those, for example. But you could, you know, theoretically do um, spread trades between one mini contract versus another. Um, the the full size contracts have plenty of options depth, um, so you could look at doing, you know, sort of defined risk strategies. For example, um, if you're doing like a vertical spread or something like that, where you know, you know, you know ahead of time exactly how much capital you're putting at risk. Um, but a lot of it, I mean, if you're looking, especially if you have like a terminal, um, like Bloomberg or Icon or something like that, you know, go ahead and take a look at basically seasonal spreads. Um, because if we're looking at the spreads between two product months, there's usually a very good seasonal pattern. Um, and it might be higher or lower depending on overall supply and demand, but it usually follows a general trend. We have a pretty defined idea of what range it should be trading in given the amount of nomenclature and sort of 
technical um, knowledge that we've just thrown around rather cavalierly here. Um, are there any <laughs> books that you could recommend about the ag space where people could read more? I, I just, you know, um, it's one thing to look at prices on the screen. It's sort of another to understand like, okay, what are the crop cycles? Who are the big importers? Who are the big exporters? What are some of the sort of history of these crops and like how they all fit together? Like, is there any reading that you could recommend people? Yeah, so probably the probably the favorite of most of the grain traders is one called uh, Merchants of Grain um, by Dan Morgan. It's a bit of an older book, um, I believe from the 80s, but he really covers a lot of the sort of marketing side of it, um, what goes on in the commercial traders in terms of how they're buying, selling, marketing, everything like that. And you, it looks like you can pick that one up, you know, for under 10 bucks on Amazon, so... Father Bezos coming in and saving us all again. <laughs> uh, so we like to close out our uh, podcast with a segment called Trading Rich, Trading Cheap. Um, I, you know, I think we've had a long conversation here where we've talked a lot about some of the risks from trade. But uh, at the same time, the uh, global trading volumes are about as high in real terms as they've been in world history. And, um, you know, trade is, has been, by and large, profoundly um, positive for global growth and for, um, you know, especially in developing economies. Uh, do you think global trade is trading rich or trading cheap? Uh, trading rich. Why do you say that? Uh, I think I think a lot of countries, uh, China has been able to really trade with a lot of countries. And I think from what I'm seeing in the more policy circles, we're seeing more of a backlash, everything from these like Qualcomm deals to China's acquisitions being blocked overseas. Uh, I think we're getting into a more um, nationalistic <laughs> anti-free trade thing. Do you think that China has a little bit of flexibility around opening up, you know, where there's room to give as well as take? I, you know, I, I, I just, the, there is so much liberalization that could go on around their market, whether it's, you know, imports of cars, whether it's, um, you know, the tariff schedules on stuff like wheat and corn. I mean, let alone stuff like intellectual property. Do you think there's any flexibility there or do you think that, that China won't see a need to, to liberalize in, in that sense? Um, I think they have plenty of flexibility, but I, I, I very lately I very doubt that we're going to see much uh, economic liberalization. Okay, well that's a little bit of bad news, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you think that the Midwest is trading rich or trading cheap? You're in you're an Iowa boy, and uh, you know you've spent most of your life there. Um, do you think that that part of the country is is being left behind, as many popular accounts would have us believe, or do you think that there's there's upside for the middle of the country? Oh, I would say probably trading cheap. Um, you know, nobody ever really talks about Des Moines, but I mean, at this point, it's basically like a, a smaller version of Portland. Um, there's so many hipsters and random artisanal taco stands now. Like, you don't even, half the time, you don't really even think that you're in Iowa. So I think that would probably get some younger people um, staying around more versus traditionally they would head to bigger cities. It's remarkable. I can remember visiting Kansas City a few years ago and being really taken aback at how much it reminded me of a, of a major coastal city. And I mean, I, I've thought that about a number of other cities I've visited in the Midwest, but um, Kansas City especially was like, whoa, this is not what I expected at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Alrighty. Um, it is tournament time um, in the US. Are, are you a college basketball fan at all? I do. I have no idea. <laughs> 
Really, you don't you don't no no idea at all um, with the with the NCAA tournament. The the only sport that I've managed to really follow with any dedication is Formula One, mostly just because like there's one one thing maybe once a month, and that's as much about that's as much time as I can really devote to something. Well, Formula One's a really interesting market story too, with the whole uh, Liberty story and and all of the fun stuff that John Malone cooks up. Um, so, do you think that uh, the the stock stock and it's also got a great ticker too, F W O N K, which is like you know <laughs> Wonk. <laughs> do you think the do you think the uh, do you think Wonk is trading Richard's trading chip cheap? We usually don't get people on the record with with market stuff in this particular segment, but since you opened yourself up to a Formula One question. I oh man I don't know the stock. I think Formula One is probably trading cheap, um, just because I think they can do all sorts of fun stuff with you know the new um, technologies with all the different cameras and sensors and you know potentially like virtual reality, all sorts of fun stuff like that. And I, I think it's I think it's a very global sport that could appeal to a lot of people. Is it popular in China? Um, decently popular, not as huge as Europe, but um, they're coming up with uh, when is it April? April or May, they're doing the uh, Formula One in Shanghai. So I luckily got some tickets for that. Oh, awesome. Yeah, so um, Fuang did uh, like a 132% return from June of 2016 through late uh, 2017. And it's uh, since then down like, oh... 22%. So if, you, if you're bullish on Formula <laughs> One, you can get it cheap right now. I'll have to take a look. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, well, I think that's going to wrap things up. Um, Darren Frederick, uh, you can uh, follow Darren on Twitter, and I really recommend you do. Um, uh, he's really got some great perspectives on uh, agricultural markets, on international trade, on living in China. Um, and it's always fun to have somebody waking up in your Twitter feed when you're going to sleep and vice versa. <laughs> so definitely follow um, at Crush Spread on Twitter. And Darren, thanks very much for joining us, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, George. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Our research includes reports, analysis, commentary, and data sets sent out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music featured in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2018, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.